Hello and welcome to the Yenar podcast, the official podcast of the New Zealand Skeptics. Today, I am joined by Bronwyn, Yora, Katrina, Ta-da. and we have Brad McClure from the Skeptics Committee with us. Hey, Brad. Oh, yeah. Was that a flawless start? Did I finally manage it the last one we have before Craig comes back? I think I did. I think Craig will be the judge of that. Craig and Susan. Oh, tell yeah, you, he did. They'll tell you how many mistakes you've made. <laughs> he did message us, didn't he? And say that he'd been listening while he was on the road in America and Canada. And that, yeah, he'd been kind of tutting whenever he spotted us make a mistake. Which I can't wait to hear about those mistakes. Oh, what fun when someone else points out when you get something wrong. Yes, Craig, we're really looking forward to having you back. <laughs> um, but keep your keep your opinions to yourself, though. So we had a audio spectacular issue of our newsletter recently, which I don't know about you, Brad and Bronwyn, but I really enjoyed this one. How how did you find writing articles for it? Yeah, loved it. It was great. Yeah, and um, I'm looking. I haven't read all the other articles yet, but I'm really looking forward to hearing about some stuff like binaural beats and stuff that I don't know anything about. Uh, well, so, that that yeah. brings me to my first question of this mm. evening, then, which is that the, the articles that I wrote, I'm not really worried about mm. does vinyl sound better? No, it doesn't. It's worse. Mm-hmm. The most mysterious song on the internet was just a little thing. But yeah, if we had a choice of talking about binaural beats this evening or talking about backmasking, which one do you think would be the more interesting topic? Oh, God, back, backmasking is a really old... I haven't heard about that for years. Like, it's an old thing, isn't it? Like, from way back. It is. It is from kind of the 80s and 90s. It's kind of like part of the whole satanic panic and and, and that whole thing, isn't it? Really? Way back in the day when they were worried about stairway to heaven. Yep. And And Bronwyn, Katrina, do you have any preference? I don't know what binaural beats are, and I'm just guessing what backmasking may be. So uh, I will let someone who has a little bit more knowledge explain those and take a choice. Oh, can I, 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 can, I, can I just quickly explain what that is? Sorry, that would be Bronwyn, wonderful. You, you speak first, Bronwyn. Well, I, I was about to say I'm of, I'm of two minds on this because I really want to, you know, why don't we talk about is Paul dead? But at the same time, we've had a few chances to try to go to what this biurnal beats um, workshop or session somewhere in the depths of Whitby, but we keep on missing out. Yeah, yeah. So this is a an event I found a while ago. A guy who he seems to be, I don't know whether it's a multi-level marketing scheme, but he's in a scheme which sells really expensive headphones that are supposed to be optimized for playing binaural beats. But the way he advertises it is by running a binaural beat session uh, on meetup.com where you can sign up to go and listen in his living room to these headphones and then presumably he hits you with the hard sell. I think about the time we found it was the time that we were hit by a pandemic and going around to some random person's house was probably not the best thing to be doing. Gosh, okay, you're in two minds, Bronwyn. Katrina, you don't know much about either. And Brad, you... I'd like to hear about binaural beats because I don't know about... because I know all about backward masking. Okay, Um, so so do you want to then... 
Okay, so back masking. Let's just do a brief bit of that so everybody knows what we're talking about. And we can point people to the newsletter for more. But basically, back masking is the idea that there are hidden backwards messages in music. And it's something that's been around for a while. It's also something that artists have been doing deliberately for a while. But most of the examples that kind of joined in with the satanic panic of the 80s and 90s were not real examples. It was audio paradolia, where if, if you listen to this piece of music backwards and someone tells you you are going to hear someone saying this phrase, your brain picks up on it. But at the same time, if you listen to it backwards and nobody tells you what you're expecting, it just sounds like garbled gobbledygook. There's nothing of interest there. But once you're primed, as soon as you're told you're about to hear Freddie Mercury singing, it's fun to smoke marijuana. When you hear another one bites the dust played backwards, that's exactly what it sounds like. And like as a teenager, a friend of mine, um, he was warned about it because he came from a Christian family and his parents were really concerned because he got into Queen and other rock bands. They were concerned that he was going to be corrupted by these hidden messages in music. So we did a test. We got a bunch of vinyl and we played it backwards on his player. Uh, And it was really interesting to hear them. And sure enough, once you're told what you're going to be listening to, you really do hear it. it. It's fascinating. But we we also did the test where um, I think I wasn't told what something was. My friend knew what to expect and he could hear it. I didn't know what to expect. He played the music backwards. I couldn't for the life of me guess what it was. I just could not get what the message was meant to be. So, yeah, so I wrote about this and my history of playing with it in the newsletter. And then I talked about not just the deliberate hidden ones, but the bit I finished off with, which was a bit that I really liked, was some of my favorite musicians, weird artists who deliberately embedded pictures in their music. And this one I really enjoyed because you can use a spectrogram. You can basically embed in audio frequencies a picture that will show up in a spectrogram, which kind of maps over time the frequencies that are dominant in a piece of audio. And the the pictures I managed to put in there, I took screenshots from an audio player called Fubar, where you could see a self-portrait of Aphex Twin, and then Venetian Snares put some really nice pictures of his cats in a piece of music. Of course, the music sounds to most people absolutely awful. It doesn't sound like music at all. But I love the idea that not only can you hide audio in a piece of music, but you can also hide pictures. That was my bit on backmasking just in a couple of minutes. But the one, yeah, the other one that I, I am fascinated by is the binaural beats. And you guys, have you tried binaural beats before? No. No, that's I really wanted to go to that workshop. Yeah, so the idea with binaural beats is basically that you play audio into a pair of headphones and it has to be headphones because you can't have any crosstalk. So with headphones, you make sure that each ear is only hearing one side of a stereo feed and each ear you play a slightly different frequency. And the frequency might be 450 hertz in one ear and 500 hertz in the other ear. Now, what happens when you play this? And I I did this, I played around with them years ago and listened to them just to see this effect happening or hear this effect happening. What happens is you end up with the difference between the two frequencies becomes a third frequency, obviously a lower frequency. The difference between 450 and 500 is 50 hertz. And you hear 
a kind of 50 hertz hum in the middle of your head. It's like there's a speaker in the middle of your head that's just generating this third frequency because it's not in one ear or the other, it's between the two. So somewhere in the middle, you can kind of hear this thing. And it's, it's a really interesting audio phenomena that that interference pattern ends up making a third low frequency that you can hear. And if that was as far as it went, of course, there'd be nothing to be skeptical about. It's just an interesting piece of science. But it's always the case, isn't it, that when when somebody finds out a new cool thing, somebody else is willing to, A, lie about what it's able to do, and B, try and make a fast buck out of it. And this is exactly what's happened with binaural beats, is that people have basically started to claim that these things are a cure-all, that different frequencies are good for different things, that maybe they can entrain your brain waves, that they can shift the frequencies of your brain waves. And maybe there are certain frequencies of brain waves that are more beneficial. So there are frequencies you should aim for. Let's say you have autism. Maybe there's a frequency that's beneficial to people who are autistic. And if you listen to a binaural beat of this frequency, it will shift your brain frequency, which will get rid of your autism magic, you're cured. Oh, and by the way, can I have $1,000 for this? Which is what happened in the early days of binaural beats, is people tried selling them in um, iPhone apps and things like this, and tried making a whole lot of money out of it, which was just absolutely ridiculous. But in essence, there's nothing magical about them. There's nothing really useful about them. They're just an interesting phenomena. I will try and inject a binaural beat in this audio for those who are listening on headphones. For those who are listening in the car or elsewhere, it's not going to work very well, sadly. But for those of you listening on headphones, um, I'll see if I can find something that'll give a good 50 or 100 hertz beat in the middle of your head. Do you know what the frequencies of the binaural beats normally are, or are they different? Or as I said, they're they're different. Basically, what people do is they claim that for the different brain waves that there are different frequencies that you can entrain them to match that will help with different conditions. So when I looked at the current audio that's on YouTube for binaural beats. Honestly, it didn't take me long to find all sorts of health claims. Like I put a list in the newsletter of the types of health conditions that people had put tracks up on YouTube claiming that they could treat with their binaural beats. And it was nausea, stomach issues, nerve damage, toothache, dementia, dyslexia, Alzheimer's, hangovers, pain, premature ejaculation, ADHD, ADD hair loss, sinus issues, eye bags, migraines, and the list goes on. And this was like the first, you know, 30 or 40 YouTube results. And I was already getting all these different medical conditions. The idea that these binaural beats can do anything like that is just ridiculous in every single circumstance. I I think this might have happened to me when I was learning to use my new ear. I was Because I get completely different sound in each ear. And uh, for a while I had a shadow voice. So every time someone talked, there was a low thrumming in the background just while I was hearing the speech. Um, And I do wonder if it was that. But my brain learnt to mask it out, whatever it was. And I wonder if that's what would happen if you were listening to this kind of sound for a long time, your brain would just make it go away. (laughs) Maybe because your cochlear implants just do a few frequencies each. 
Yes, yeah, so, so I've got, um, you know, just a normal hearing aid with, you know, I guess normal sound in one ear and then the other ear is just limited frequencies. So um, I'm probably causing the same effect to some degree um, through what I was doing. I just wonder if it was causing some of the strange effects I was getting, but whatever it is, my brain got rid of it. So um, I, would, I just wonder if if you did this a lot, whether it would still have the same effect or your brain would just compensate and make the sound go away. That's really interesting. So it might have been then that, let's say, someone was talking to you at 600 hertz, mm. but the, the nearest frequency that your cochlear implant was providing was 700 hertz, that maybe the fact that you're getting like the frequency at 600 hertz in one ear, but the cochlear implant is going for 700 in the other, that, yeah, you would end up with the difference of the two, maybe that could brad's already got a quizzical look on his face like how does that work <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah no and i'm not sure what i mean the thing is if um if it was the implant was recording at 600 uh you know taking in 600 hertz and then playing back in seven uh, at 700 hertz it would sound they'd sound like a, a little bit like a chipmunk um, that 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 is a cochlear <laughs> implant, right? Isn't it that it, it just? Oh, okay. So, like, like how I hear people. <laughs> oh, yeah. right. So, so the cochlear implant isn't just basically taking all frequencies and playing them. The cochlear implant only stimulates like how many free? Is it like eight frequencies or something that it picks? Uh, I think it's more like might be more like thirty. I'm not sure, but it does. It plays more than one at one time, so you get. Um, you can make quite a lot of combinations of sounds, so enough to pick up speech quite well. And some people can even, if, with practice, hear music very well. So it, it's it's not um, like an eight-bit synthesizer or anything like that. It's not like that. <laughs> yeah, but, it'd be yeah. compression. Compression would be going on, but not actual. You would it wouldn't replay frequencies at different frequencies. I don't think that would happen. But I, I think would, it has to, Brad. I think mm. the, the way, if it works like that, the way it would work, I imagine, is like with color, how, you know, a TV only emits three colors, but from that we can make all the colors by choosing the amount of each. I imagine with the cochlear implant, what it will probably try to do is mix the nearest frequencies in the right amounts that between the two of them, it will kind of be the right frequency. Yeah, they, mm. they, they, they've got to try it out and adjust all the sounds while you're sitting there to make it it's very subjective um experience of sound um but yeah it's um but i don't know whether it's related to this or not um yeah. but i was certainly getting some strange um echo sound effects that nobody could explain you've only got that in one ear so one, yeah one yeah ears. um yeah. just just one ear um they um uh, only fund one for adults in New Zealand and for children, they've fun too. And they do that quite early so that they can learn to hear. And um, I think I'd be quite nervous about having the second ear done. Big deal, giving away that last tiny vestige of sound <laughs> completely. 
What I was honestly disappointed with when I looked into this and I tried to look at what the skeptical response was, was there were some good quotes from people like Stephen Novella, but reading what Stephen Novella had to write, it just felt like as a skeptic, he wasn't going far enough. He was kind of mm. more of a cautious medical person of, you know, he, what do you say? The current research is suggestive, but not definitive, genuinely warranting further research. And what I put in my article was a list of, hang on a minute, you know, there are like seven or eight different hurdles that need to be jumped before we can say that a binaural beat can have this kind of medical utility. Um, and none of these have been proven. All of these, you know, the idea that you can adjust a frequency of one of your brain waves is one of them. The idea that audio can do this, that playing audio of a certain frequency can affect the frequency of this brainwave, that it's it's a read-write thing and not just a read-only. Yes, we can read the brainwaves and see what frequencies they're at, but the idea that you can adjust them doesn't seem to make much sense. Um, and then the idea that being able to adjust them would actually have any kind of benefit. You know, even if you could say, if your theta brainwave is at this frequency, it's good. Therefore, if you shift this brainwave to this frequency, it's going to have a health benefit and be good. It's like sometimes coercing something doesn't get you the effect, right? It's the causative arrow is in the other direction. You having this good health thing might be shown in this frequency, but then coercing this frequency doesn't make the good health thing happen. They're not tied in both directions, but none of that seemed to have been covered by, by Steve or any other skeptics. The idea that there were just, there are so many logical leaps that are needed to get from listening to a binaural beat to, oh, there's a health benefit. And he seemed to only look at the part of it, which is what does the current research show? And the current research is all over the place. It's shoddy, but the idea of um, science-based medicine is basically that you don't just look at a single study in isolation. You don't even look at a whole bunch of studies. You also look at scientific plausibility. You say, what is the plausibility of this happening? Because we need to take that into consideration. We need to look at things like plausibility. We need to work out our prior probability. We need to work out how big is the hurdle that we're trying to jump over when we're doing testing on this thing. And with something like binaural beats will get rid of your asthma, I think that hurdle is absolutely massive. You know, it, it seems to just not accord with anything that we understand about science. So the amount of evidence you need is not just a few pilot studies. It's not even measuring a few thousand people. I think it's a whole lot more than that and then we need to go back and find out well if it does work how the hell does it work like what what have we totally misunderstood about science that this binaural beat is able to treat people's health conditions it's kind of interesting because when you look at other studies that try to bring in brain imaging such as well is there something in the brain structure that determines if you're gay is there something in the brain structure that, det that determines that you're autistic the question kind of comes up, they'll still do the scans, but it comes up a little bit short because the question is, well, does being gay or being autistic cause those structures or does the structures themselves or the difference in maybe say a size of a certain area of your brain cause the autism or, you know, same sex attraction. So I wonder if maybe we need to go back to those old school, um, vicious science experiments in the uh, 50s and 60s where you know you take an animal or you take a baby and you completely isolate it and then only let it have um input for for a certain uh, frequency and then see what happens yeah. <laughs> it's not ethical no not ethical but you know how else are you going to do it you know it's just hey maybe uh 
you know, you'd know for sure, wouldn't you? You know, only alpha waves. Okay, then. <laughs> yeah, I think we're missing the controls. But it, yeah. it, I mean, it, it's sort of like a meditation, isn't it? While you were doing it, you're listening to concentrating on a sound intensely and hopefully not other things. So I guess it's possible if it has some sort of effect on stress that it might have a temporary effect on things. And you're probably not going to have an asthma attack while you're sitting down with headphones on, but whether it has any kind of long-term effect, I think, will be a different question. And if it's just stress, um, you know, for example, that's mediating it, then there's many things you can do that um, don't cost you $1,000 and aren't headphones and aren't sound do, to do that. So it just there's just so many variables going on you know, in terms of brain waves and physiological things the only thing I can think of is you know stress or something that might be treatable but in terms of making a condition go away yeah I think there are a lot of leaps of logic going on there to make that happen it sounds like a lot of those conditions that you listed were of the vague nature that also is quite subjective and and the um the things that might likely to be a affected would be just the the pain aspect or the irritation aspect things that um you know um the placebo effect works for but not missing legs or you know yeah cancerous growths going away certainly some of them were like that some some of them were the kind of thing yeah nausea and like a hangover is probably going to go away you know, within a few yeah. hours of you listening to a binaural beep, right? Because it's going to go away anyway. A hangover mm-hmm. is a temporary thing that you know it's not going to be with you forever. Um, isn't this something like the bioptron? You know, the idea that lights are at certain frequencies as well. It's just no sound, and therefore you show that light on your on your on your bones or on your skin. And it heals like the same sort of. Say it quietly, otherwise Bioptron might make their own binaural headphones, and we don't want them to do that. Yeah, so Bioptron (laughs) is that Swiss company that makes very large, white, medical-looking devices, but it turns out that all it is is a low-level white light and some screw-on coloured filters you put in front of it. And so you basically shine this really dull light on you, and they claim that it can treat all sorts of medical conditions. And Bronwyn, you were treated by this last year, weren't you? unsuccessfully of course <laughs> and there's you dropped a pan on your foot didn't you and that's why you no had- no i i dropped a one liter bottle of hand sanitizer on my toe <laughs> <laughs> and finally like over a year later the toe was finally normal again oh so hang on so you had bioptron as a treatment and then finally it got better <laughs> i mean you know 11 months later sure <laughs> hand sanitizer is really bad for you yeah from everything i can tell like the plausibility is not there the evidence is not there it just it doesn't seem like it's happening at all which is sad if we could have like any of these magical cures that as skeptics we look into if any of them worked if any of them was a panacea that could treat everything it would be amazing like we'd be living in the future this would be such a cool life to be leading but sadly Things are never that simple. Nobody's got that one treatment that does everything. No matter how much your acupuncturist will tell you that there's a a chi point for everything and that the needles can do whatever you want. It's it's just lies. Well, that's always the first red flag, isn't it? If somebody says this this cures whatever ails you. Yeah. 
because nothing's like that in in real life. As I like to say, if if somebody yeah. tells you it can treat everything, it probably can't treat anything. That you know, it, obviously, their scientific rigor is not there if whatever testing they're doing has told them that it's great for every medical condition. That that really does tell you that whatever testing they're doing is deeply flawed, not that this is a magical cure-all. And I have no segue. Craig also, <laughs> as well as messaging about how we got stuff wrong on the podcast, also let me know that my segues are crap, and I'm not going to disagree with him here. This is one sound article to another, and I still don't have a segue. Hey, Brad, what do you mm. think it would be like if you had a binaural beat of 432 hertz? Well, I was just going to say, <laughs> before you said that, who needs angry emails when you've got Craig? <laughs> yeah. he, we should kick him off the podcast, because at least he gives us reliable feedback. He lets us know every week what we're doing wrong but, which but he doesn't much, do but, when he's on the podcast yeah and 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 how much of that do we would we actually take on now that he wouldn't when he would no longer be on the podcast we'd have no obligation to listen to him yeah i'd put him in my spam filter definitely he'd be uh, blacklisted and straight to the bin we need craig we want him back <laughs> we do want him back we are we are jesting i did tell him it's not the same without him exactly yeah Craig, you're needed. Please come back to the podcast. Oh, hang on. Is this just because you want to get off the podcast, Katrina? You're filling in for Craig. Have you just had enough already? <laughs> uh, no comment. <laughs> Whoa, okay. So, Brad, 432 hertz. This is one of those magical frequencies, and there seem to be a few of them. What's so special about 432 hertz? Um, well, in a word... Absolutely nothing. That was two enough. words. <laughs> and the word nothing. Thank you for having me. And we'll, we'll move on to the next one now. <laughs> no, we want more than a word. Oh, um, oh. So, so okay. So why did you look at 432 hertz? This is obviously something you've heard before. I yeah, like yeah, yeah. claims that it does something interesting. Yeah. So look, um, I've, I've heard it, been hearing about this for a little while from some people. Every now and again, somebody mentions it. Um, it's not a big thing, but um, I'm a piano tuner by trade. I spend, you know, probably 90, 95% of my time is spent deciding what frequency to set somebody's piano to. And I have been asked to tune someone's piano to 432. And I said to them, well, if it's an old piano, it's probably already below that anyway. So I'll probably be bringing it up to that. Um, 432 hertz. So, you know, um, what hertz is? Hertz is basically cycles per second. Hertz is a a term invented by Mr. Hertz, and um, it just means cycles per second. And so 432 hertz is a very flat A, basically. It's like if you were looking at a piano, it's the A above middle C, and it's normally the standard is 440. Sometimes it's 441. Kira likes 443. And so it's not it's not set in stone that it has to be 440. You can tune your instrument or your piano to a different frequency if you want to. But 432 is eight cycles per second flatter than what is, you know, the common standard. And all it means is that that one note is eight cycles per second. And of course, relative to that, the rest of the notes on your instrument will be a little bit flatter. So everything so, gets tuned up or down by that kind of that same percentage. Yeah. So that's eight over yeah. four forty difference. 
Uh, yeah, exact, exactly. Eight over 440, that's a good way of putting it, although it's there's two ways of um, kind of quantizing a note on a piano. One is the frequency and the other one is the sense in relation to the note next to it. In other words, a semitone is 100 cents. So if A is 440, then um, the note next to it will be 100 cents or one whole semitone flatter than that. And that is not won't be a round number. It'll be a very imperfect number. And the same thing happens if you had 432. All the notes on your instrument wouldn't be, they wouldn't be round note numbers. So an octave is half or double. In other words, if you've got A440, the A, that's A4. That's the A above middle C is A4. A5, which is the next one up, will be 880. Um, A3, which is, you know, below middle C, that will be 220. And then 110, and then 55. And then the very lowest A is like 20, what's that, 22 and a half cycles per second. So that means the string goes back and forth um, that many times in a second. And then it produces a sound wave, which is hitting your ears at that speed. If you translated it to a wind instrument, obviously there is a vibration within the instrument at that speed, and that's what gives you that pitch. So, so 440 that, is standard for A, like middle A. There's a middle C, right? Is there a middle A yeah. in a piano as well? Yeah, it's kind, of, it's kind of the A above middle C. Okay. Is 440. Yeah, the middle middle C is kind of a, I guess, a layman's term or, or I don't know, just a term that you would use to say it's more or less the C that's nearest the middle of the piano. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so so yep. if, if, I, if I had a piano and if I paid you money to come around and tune it to 432 hertz, like that mm -hmm. eight hertz difference in four from 440 to 432, I, I guess probably a lot of people couldn't even hear that, or could they? Can you tell that it's different? Can you tell how much it's like? Is it obvious to the ear? Is it is it obvious to your ear as a piano tuner? I presume it would be. Right. So um, there's a short answer to that, and that's that some people might be able to tell. Some people that might have, well, you know, that might profess to have perfect pitch, or there might be people who um, are listening to music, piano music, all the time every day and then you become really accustomed to this certain sound and then when you hear it you go oh that sounds a little bit off and weird the ironic thing there is that most 432 hertz you know music that you will download or get podcasts of and stuff it's not piano music it's not guitar it's not a real instrument music it's usually synth you know that lame new age sort of <laughs> meditation type music um, that it really wouldn't matter what it was. It sounds lame anyway. And yeah, I I don't know if you would know. I mean, I can't hear it sounding any better one way or the other. But that brings us to a point where if you decided you'd look into this and you started listening to this music, then you're going to be bombarded with a certain type of music that you may never have heard before and you might find it quite appealing. And you think, and you'll just go, oh, this is, this is amazing. But it's not the frequency it's tuned to it's just the type of music that you're being bombarded with you and you happen to be already open to that you know it's because you're now listening to hippie music with an alan watts voiceover that makes you feel good about the universe that you suddenly yeah. think that it's doing good 
when I was doing a bit of research, I um, thought what I wondered what kind of podcast might be around for this. And I downloaded a podcast and started listening to it. And then and and there was an introduction. You're going to be hearing music in 432 hertz. And then an ad, ad came on. And um, clearly the advertisers don't believe in 432 hertz because the music on the advert was just good old ordinary old 440. <laughs> um, yeah. And then the music came on. And of course, it sounded flat compared to the <laughs> ad that had just played. So they probably need to sort that shit out a little bit but okay um, so so tuning based on 440 presumably what you want to do is like you want to change the entire instrument that if you just change your a from 440 to 432 it's going to sound odd compared to oh, all yeah. the other keys on a piano for yeah. example yeah and the, this is this is what i think what is what is actually meant by 432 is um that's correct you you tune the whole instrument relative to a 432 that's why in the article i stress that the idea is a equals 432 hertz and so that's the a the rest of it's tuned relative to that so the a below would be 432 divided by two the a above would be 864 <laughs> um, i'm, I'm yeah. reading it's kind of the heartbeat of the earth and that your heartbeat naturally resonates when it hears yep. this frequency and yeah. that changes the atoms and thought waves and even our DNA. Yeah. And yeah. I'm, I'm also seeing that um, a lot of this comes from a book by Maria Reynold, who is an acolyte of Rudolf Steiner. Oh, um, yeah. Right. <laughs> which yes. probably explains a little yeah. bit. The bullshit. Um, the, yeah. Yeah. Pseudoscience. So Cosmic sources of musical inspiration and the occult experience of musical modes, which is just. Um, but that's yeah. a pretty big claim. It's a pretty big claim to say, oh, we're going to rewrite your DNA at 432 hertz. I mean, if there was any, you know, evidence of that, it, you know, it's the same thing I've recently had to tell somebody about, you know, menstrual fluid being used as a face mask. It's like, believe it or not, 432 hertz is hella cheap compared to, say, chemotherapy. Uh, or, you know, any other yeah. sort of, uh, you know, genetic therapy. So, yeah, if that actually worked, believe it or not, people would be on that, like. Yeah. Well, so, like, let's talk about the, you know, heart rate mm -hmm. and the frequency of the earth and all that sort of stuff. For a start off, obviously, we all know that um, a second is a man or a human-made thing. A second isn't a natural phenomenon. A second is our way of measuring time. You know, and we we took a day and we divided it into twenty four, and then we divided it into sixty, and then we divided it into sixty again, and that's what we use as a second. It's no, it's just an arbitrary length of time. If our seconds had turned out to be a tenth of a minute, then it wouldn't be four thirty two hertz, would it? So it's so arbitrary that it's not a magical number in itself, and neither. Are, and so I've seen arguments online for this being. Um, oh, it divides up so uh, elo eloquently and oh, beautifully and elegantly and divides up into all these um, other frequencies. But that's that's just total crap. It's, it's the um, actually 440 is better in that way, but not that that matters. Now, um, as far as the it being the frequency of the heart, well, I don't know about you, but 
when I'm resting, if I'm lucky, my heart gets down to about 60 mm-hmm. beats per minute. So that's one hertz, not that's 432 one hertz. hertz, right? Yeah, my heartbeat is one hertz. That's, a you know, if I've been sleeping well. And if I'm out there exercising and it gets up over 100, well, that's 1.77 hertz or two hertz. Might get up to two and a half. So a heart rate, if your heart rate's 432 hertz, that's 25,920 beats per minute. Um, I don't know about you, but um, I, I don't think I would live very long if I'd, it would fix everything, really though, wouldn't it? If your heart was beating that fast, you wouldn't have very many medical problems for very long. No, yeah. that's true. That's true. Yes, yes, you would have no, you would have no cancer. You'd have no, because you wouldn't exist after a very short time. So there's that. Yeah. Okay, so you, I mean, you found a whole bunch of claims, right? You know, that it sounds better. The the one I I love that you just, you didn't even give it more than basically a sentence, which is the Nazis tried to take over the world with A at 440 hertz. What what the hell is that? Is is it the idea that the Germans tried to push A being 440 hertz on the world as a standardization or something? Yeah, now um, I've forgotten about this. But, um, but yeah, basically, that is one of the arguments that's made. There's no truth in it at all. In fact, um, it was, it was de- decided on um, by, I think, the UK, by a, you know, a panel that that was going to be the standard. Um, and it was before, um, before the Nazis even existed, I think. So they had nothing to do with it. And um, one has to wonder how they... How would they have taken over the world by changing the standard to 440? Is it because everybody would become hypnotized? And I don't understand how that would actually work anyway. Do you? I love I, it. I, I just don't. Just yeah. one of those things. Any conspiracy that delves into Nazis, I it's yeah. just really interesting to see them go there. So the other question I've got is like I I wondered about the number itself, 432. Is there an element of numerology here? Did they pick 432 because it, you know, each digit is one lower than the previous one? Because the other frequencies that I know of that are in the same kind of pseudoscientific space is the solfeggio frequencies, which are, what are they, 396 and 639 and 852. It's basically three digits that are three away from each other. And this is supposed to be a magical musical scale as well. So I wonder whether is, is 432, is it just because the numbers are one different to each other, do you think? Hmm, could be. I'd, I think I have heard arguments like that. Again, they're likely to be post hoc arguments that have come along um, because people have decided that this is what they like and they're trying to justify it. There's um, a whole lot of other things I could get into. Um, yeah, you you might have seen that I listed in the in um, a few things in the article. Um, for instance, you know, one of the first arguments comes along, of course, is the appeal to antiquity. And that's that, you know, all the ancient instruments were tuned to 432 hertz. And they mentioned Tibetan bowls. Do you know what those are? Yeah, that's like, the bowl that you you whiz a, a wooden handle thing around and they hum, right? Yeah, like a little mallet around the inside of it. And they, they're actually quite nice, quite cool, and uh, lovely sound and everything. But um, they're just tuned to whatever they're tuned to. There's flutes and Pythagoras and Mozart. The trouble is we haven't been measuring hertz or cycles per second for very long at all. 
Um, so back in the, even Pythagoras wouldn't have known what they, he didn't have a way of measuring cycles per second. Tibetan bowls, they would be just tuned to whatever they were tuned to. There's no evidence, no proof whatsoever that anything back in the ancient days was, was specifically tuned to A equals 432. Because remember that they, if they weren't in A, they weren't 432 anyway. They would be something else anyway. So um, there's no evidence that anything was tuned to that way back in the day. And we've since lost the ancient wisdom. Um, and we get it back by tuning our instruments to 432. So just just quickly for reference, so we're talking of an A at 440. The next note down is a G. Um, the next note down is a, would be a G sharp or an A flat. A G sharp. Yep. So what frequency is a G sharp? How much further down do you go for the next note? Hmm. I'll just um, see if I can bring up a chart, actually. To, um... But one of the things that you wrote yeah. about was that actually back in the day, the best evidence we have, and I'm interested in here how we how we figured this out, but the yeah. idea that A a few hundred years ago was at 421 hertz, which is even lower than 432. But yes. I wonder how, yeah. how low do you go before you hit that next note, the G oh, sharp? Okay. Well, I can tell you, hang on. Um, I've got them, I've got them here in front of me. So A let's well let's say we're using a440 um g sharp is then 415 so so did you say 412 and 421 is what you wrote oh, in your article that oh, they yes, reckon yeah. that maybe music yeah. back then was a at 421 yeah. so yeah. that's really close to the next note then g sharp yeah and i'll tell you um scottish bagpipes are really sharp they are more than a semitone sharp. So A on Scottish bagpipes is something like 467. That's way up higher. Is that why they sound so awful? Well, no. There's other reasons they sound so awful. <laughs> um, what, what's the reason why they're, they're made to have higher frequencies then? Is it because of the nature of how they play or something? Well, they weren't originally, but one of the things that happened, and I think it's um well uh, one theory i have is that it's to do with the fact that they were so competitive it's been a real competitive thing bagpiping they have bit major pipe bands and they come along and they all bit do displays and then the next pipe band comes along and plays and it's a similar thing to what happened with radio stations when they used to play analog vinyl records that one radio station would just tweak their turntables so they're just slightly faster so when you tuned into um, one radio station then you tuned into this radio station the music just sounded slightly more upbeat and slightly okay. and and <laughs> and um and it would have an effect and it would make people want to listen to that radio station and the same thing happened with pipes i think this is what happened i've heard this is what's happened with bagpipes is that they tuned them um, they were originally a, well, not may, maybe not necessarily A440. They might have been all over the place. But basically everybody in the band has to choose a frequency and tune to that. And, um, and the other thing, of course, too, is that the pipes are very, very old. So they may have just been a little bit sharper. And then, th then they might be easier to sharpen than to flatten. So if you imagine if you've got, say, a whole band of bagpipes and they're all different frequencies, you might pick the sharpest one and then pull all the other ones up to it by tuning them. So, yeah, and so that's that's another thing that happened. But like, if you get a, a whole bunch of pipe, uh, pipe bands on a doing doing their 
competitive stuff marching around and then you get one band and they just sound slightly higher and sharper then the effect it's going to have is oh these guys are a bit better and they might win the competition so <laughs> that's that's my theory um okay. but I, I mean i, like that I haven't yeah like i haven't even touched on the fact that um there's a there's a whole lot of problems with changing the pitch of instruments um oh i did mention this didn't i in the um article that Flutes, for instance, flutes are designed to be at a certain frequency, and it's probably A440. If you wanted to build a whole flute that's designed to be A432, you know, knock yourself out. But basically, the holes would have to be all slightly further apart, because what happens is you, if you choose the A on your flute and then you extend the flute out a little bit, what you're doing is um, your effect, the, it's the mouthpiece bit that you pull out. And so you will flatten the note closest to your mouth a lot, but the note right down the other end, that will only be affected a little bit. So um, because it's obviously, it's a percentage of the length between the holes, between where you blow and where the hole is, that gets affected. So it's a huge percentage of that, the little short length, it's only a little percentage it's like the same reason that guitar frets get smaller as they go up, you know. So it's effectively like shifting the bridge on a guitar to make it flatter. Um, that's obviously going to affect the high notes more than it affects the low notes. So your whole scale will get upset. And then the thing that happens if you try to tune a piano down is the scale of the instrument and the mass of the strings is designed to um, sound best at that tuning that it's designed for, which is probably 440. It may be 439 or it might be 441, but uh, it will sound best. And what will happen is if you want it to still sound good at 432, you really need to rescale the piano and put a whole new set of strings on, 240-odd strings, um, some of which are wound, specially made, and they have to have slightly more mass so that you get the tension back up again. Otherwise, it's just going to sound a little bit dead. And, and I just have to say, as an aside, um, I have been asked to pull up, you know, concert grands to 441, which is only one hertz higher, right? And I thought, this is ridiculous. No one's going to even notice. But I have to say that it did sound brighter at 441. And, you know, anybody who's ever changed a string on a guitar, you'll know, you would have noticed that when you put the string on before you tighten it up, it's just dead until you get it up to pitch and then it sounds right. The problem with 432 hertz is if the instrument's not designed to be at that, it won't sound as bright, it'll sound more dead. Okay, um, so electronic yeah. instruments are going to be relatively easy and stuff that's made in yeah. software, especially yeah. so, but anything physical is yeah. all built around A being 440 and yeah. there's going to be that a certain said, amount though, of redesign. Yeah, well, that said, though, um, most electronic instruments... Uh, nowadays are digital when they're sampled and they were sampled at 440 <laughs> <laughs> right but yeah so yeah you could sample an instrument that was designed and tuned to 432 and it would sound amazing but it wouldn't sound any more amazing than <laughs> one that's designed and sampled at 440 it just wouldn't you know and the, the thing that the thing that gets me most about this is just the you know it's just the usual a bunch of pseudoscience like 
use of the word frequency because a lot of people don't even think about what the word frequency means, right? Um, or vibrations and stuff like that. You know, these claims that it's the vibration of the universe, the vibration of your, you know, um, and claims that you'll claims that it'll get rid of toxins and all this sort of stuff. How's that supposed to work? Mm. I'm just thinking like, I, I think we can make this into a, a series. I'm really interested in hearing about more. So the solfeggio frequencies, if you can look into mm. those for me, I'd be fascinated. And isn't there, what's the frequency of the earth supposedly? Is that the Schumann frequency or something? Isn't there like mm. a, like a really low frequency that the entire planet is supposed to be vibrating at? I'd, yeah. I'd love to hear more about that one as well. Let me see. Earth frequency. Let's see if Google can help me. Earth frequency. No, there's a festival called the Earth Frequency Festival. That is not <laughs> what I'm looking for. Oh, there we go. The Schumann Resonance. I think that's it. Schumann Resonance. So, okay, yeah, maybe maybe we can get an article on that. It's Yeah, it's not a lot of hertz. It's definitely not 432. No. <laughs> yeah. well, oh, there we go. 7.83 hertz, apparently. This, yep. Okay. Very low. Yeah, I think it's it's not audio. It's electromagnetic yeah. something or other. Mm. So we talked earlier, and this is a segue. Let, let's do this one. We talked earlier about, you know, the fact that it's hippy-dippy music and bad cult music that tends to use 432 hertz. Bronwyn, yeah. for this musical spectacular newsletter, you dug up some really... I'd love to say interesting. I think awful is more the word for it, right? Cult so music. bad. So bad. It's good, Mark. <laughs> so, so I sat there at work the other day and I listened to every track that you shared. Mm -hmm. And honestly, I was expecting more. I was expecting something good, at least. And most of it wasn't even good. I don't know. I think the Apollo stars were probably the best of the bunch. And, you know, this is a list that does contain Carlos Santana, who is one of the legendary guitarists. Yeah, it's not my style of music. I did not get on with that. But you're right. The Apollo Stars, which was a Scientology band. Yes, They were part, they were just a bunch of crew people on the original Sea Org ships. Oh, and, okay. Yeah. So, so was there were free winds or what was before the free oh, wind? There was another one, I think. No, it, it was called the Apollo. The ship was called the Apollo. It oh, was the Apollo was the ship name. Right. Yeah. It was one of the, it was like a former um, British World War II ship and Hubbard got a hold of it. And one of the things that they were doing, they were traveling around the world, trying to find a place where they could sort of, you know, set up port uh, with a Sea Org. And the, a mayor of this town sort of comes up to them and says, oh, can you guys play in the square? So all the musicians on board were sort of gathered together and said, OK, you guys go practice. They knew a couple of songs and they did really well. And they kept up with it because, well, it was a hell of a lot more humane hours than it was being a regular crew person in Sea Org. So rather than doing 16 hour days, they had 12 hour days. <laughs> 
<laughs> so relatively better, but still, I mean, it, it's just, infamous, it, it, isn't it? That the Sea Org members had to work such long hours and still do even when they're not on a ship. Their days are horrible. Yeah. But, you know, it was a bunch, just a bunch of musicians who were jamming. And, you know, there were some real, as it always is with these groups, you know, you have these gurus who sort of overinflate their own abilities because, you know, if you are next to God, then you should be able to play the piano, write a book, be rich and famous, get lots of women, et cetera, et cetera. And yet they're recruiting all this legitimate talent of people who are kind of lost and, you know, want someone to make decisions and give them the answers about what they do in life. And within Apollo stars, there were some actual Hollywood based talent. Like one of the musicians was the person who was part of the team who wrote the original mission impossible theme. Ah, so listening to that one, it was just a cover, just a cover. I'm not sure whether that's insulting to a band. Obviously any music is hard, but they did play it really well. Like it wasn't their own music, but it was played really nicely. Um, and then the that other Scientology one that you found. Well, I found three. Sci- I found three Scientology ones. So there. Was, oh gosh. Yeah. So there was the. Church- oh, that's right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you had the one with John Travolta, which was cheesy '80s awfulness. Yep. You're in a trap of senseless lies. But what was the other one? The third one that like had just weird noises. It was well, it was part of a soundtrack apparently for um, Battlefield Earth. And I'm like trying to figure out where is this horse music supposed to fit in in (laughs) Battlefield Earth, thinking about John Travolta and that terrible film with all the dreads and the beard, the sort of, you know, 80s rock battle. And yeah, no, here's this. It's basically, how can I say it? Father Ted did it better. My so this is the horse. wind this is the wind splitter one you're yes, talking about. Yeah. And then from the others, I mean Ann Davies, it is what it is, you know, it's interesting culty yeah. music, but it didn't but excite me. Michael, holy archangel of the south, clothed in garments of sacred flame, temper me to thy fiery might. Walk with me through the star-specked night that thy life may ignite my light. It was that record that brought Boda officially into New Zealand because it was Alistair Wallace who heard this recording and decided to kick up this correspondence with Ann Davies because within the um, Order of the Golden Dawn and the Fari Ra, there was this belief somehow, and it may be something that's been sort of made up after the fact, but there was a belief that somebody, particularly a woman, was supposed to be, who was going to come over to New Zealand and help bring in the second age of the Golden Dawn. 
real historical New Zealand interest, but not, I mean, it wasn't a bad track. It just wasn't amazing. Then we had um, Sreech and Moy playing 74 pianos for over an hour. And oh my God. Like if I guess if you can't play one piano, you can't play any of them, right? And and doing it seventy four times doesn't make you any better. It turns out he just hit the keys. It was like he was play acting, like a child pretending they could play the piano. Well, 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 that's a very interesting point to make. I mean, on one hand, the idea of playing 74 pianos of no particular tune or song or rhyme or reason, uh, it's not about the music. It's about, you know, doing something repetitively in order to reach transcendence. So that's why, in many ways, the Sri Shamoy group is probably much better known for their ultra mega super marathon so you have people who are running around a block of new york for hundreds of kilometers that's what they do you do things repetitively until everything loses meaning and all you have you know you've run past your barriers and your sense of shame and your limitations and you reach nirvana with the music as you say he's sort of going about this with childlike glee around the end of his life and this is written about in the book uh, Cartwheels and Asari by Jayanti Tam. She was saying that at the end, he was sort of saying, oh, we should all be childlike. So all right. the followers, they would all get together and they'd all, you know, start using childlike voices at this, like one of the final meetings that Sri Shamoy had. They would be riding around on like, you know, kitty toys. You know, they it, he could sometimes actually have that sort of behavior to him because people would just go for it. The Haydn one. I I had hope for the Haydn one. It started off strong. There's something coming, honey. But it ain't the Christ. Not Buddha or Muhammad. They had a little or they died. And then some Egypt started singing and ruined it. <laughs> some Egypt singing in the words of uh, Bruce Lyon. <laughs> yeah. So I didn't even manage to focus on the lyrics because the singing, it just, it didn't feel confident enough. It felt like someone who wasn't very good at singing and probably knew they weren't very good at singing. Then mm, he's performed that song a few times. Um, I've seen a couple of versions of it and it was part of an album that he had put together. Um, this Ohad Pally. Okay. And the one the one I liked that I was not expecting to, the one that you asked me, hey, this got deleted from YouTube. Can you get a copy of this from archive.org and <laughs> record it for posterity? The the Zazen one, Zen Master Rama. Yeah. Like a nineties dance music piece. I asked the Zen Master, what is dancing? And it's it's like an 80s music video, but it was done in the early 90s. Um, so who, anyone who isn't quite familiar, um, Zen Master Rama was a former disciple of Sri Shamoy. And he also had this PhD in literature, of all things. And it got to a point in his time with Sri Shamoy that he thought, you know what? I can do this better. And he actually kind of did. 
And I wonder, Mark, if potentially um, you and Craig might have been key targets for Zen Master Rama because he got a lot of his followers into computer programming. Oh, some of them. Okay. I, yeah, some of them apparently had quite successful businesses. They were able to make Zen Master Rama part of their board. So he got money that way. It's not to say that a lot of his followers didn't fail. They weren't, you know, there's quite, quite probably quite a few who are very terrible programmers. But a lot of the money he made in the 80s was with that early computer boom. Okay. So I was part of an at, or I am part of an at-risk group. Um, but that <laughs> piece of music, I mean, I wouldn't listen to it. It's cheesy, but it was of its time. It very much felt professionally done. Like if that was just released into a secular market, it probably had as much chance as any other early dance track of becoming a popular hit. Yeah. But I guess because it's just sort of, it's just so corny nowadays yes. it's it's a piece that you know people will go and make fun of it's just it's so bad it's good and it's really hard to actually find a copy of it i was surprised because that i found the copy of audio of this on reddit that i was able to send to you because it was only maybe a couple a year or so ago that the atrocity guide did this little piece about zen master rama and they had clips of this original video and you can't find it anywhere on youtube the Zazen sites, um, and by Zazen, um, I mean Zazen was an in-house band, was the name of the in-house band that Zen Masterama had. Um, and that also had some pretty good musicians that were involved. And yeah, so this is a piece, this is a music video that despite all the free records and music that they provide, they will not share this. And yeah, fascinating. <laughs> so they've had it taken off YouTube and they obviously want it to disappear or they want to make money out of it, one or the other. Mm. Don't want it to be free at the very least. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, thank you for finding those. They were mostly painful, mostly yeah. not enjoyable. But um, yeah, the I think maybe the the Scientology Apollo band. Um, I, did they, do you know if they made any of their own music or whether it was just like a covers album that they did? No, I think they I think they probably did a couple of original pieces because they were practicing for hours and hours and hours. Like they, you know, they had 12 hour days and they were doing their own rehearsals and then rehearsals as a group. So I think there was like there was some of their own original music. And L. Ron Hubbard had a lot of involvement with the Apollo Stars. Um, he was their producer in many ways. I saw in the um, the cover for that album that it's basically all of these talented musicians standing around Elron Hubbard in the middle, trying to look like he's arty because, you know, he was a polymath. He was great at everything. Right. So why would he not be great at music as well? Well, as we heard from Windsplitter, which was made on what was then one of the most expensive synthesizers of all time. What was it? Twenty five thousand uh, dollar device that he was using to make that wonderful masterpiece. Was, wow, it a fear, okay. was it a fear light? I think so. Might have been. The, the one thing I liked about, you know, the Church of Scientology one, the, the John Travolta one, the mm. lyrics, the fact that the lyrics, they were very much Scientology about yeah. um, it's the road to freedom and saving the planet. And all of this was in there. I want to get, your, sure the get your auditing done. <laughs> I, I want to hear something that sounds as good as the Apollo Scientology band, but with the lyrics of that Church of Scientology song. I think that would be a really nice mix. I think we can probably uh, convince John Travolta to do a to revisit that song. <laughs> yes, I want that. Mm. But um, I think pretty much we're going to keep that vote up. We're going to keep that poll up for at least another week till the next newsletter. So if you're listening to this podcast, um, just check the show notes, have listened to the songs yourself and uh, put in your votes of which ones you quote unquote like the best. 
Yeah, it, you, you've left it very loose because I, I, there's going to be a lot of people that won't like any of them. So what, what was it you said for your votes? It's uh, choose as many songs as you like. I mean, I like to hate stuff. So, you know, it was almost like I, I was tempted to vote for the worst of them. But then it was actually like, no, two of them I, I actually think are passable songs. So I, I gave them a thumbs up. Well, you know, you can hate them all, but there is the one that you hate the least. <laughs> That's a good metric. The least bad of the lot. <laughs> I mean, you know, I wouldn't vote for Wailana Namaste. Namaste I, bow my head. I could potentially vote for Considering Lily. I, I, yeah, I, I thought for its genre and its age, it was probably at the, the bottom part of the pile. But it def, it did sound like it was, you know, a 90s track. Mm. I'd give you that. But poor old so, Carlos Santana not getting any votes. That just... That shocks me. <laughs> Not so far. Maybe, maybe someone will come in with a last minute vote. But yeah, though there were a few of them I don't even want to mention. They weren't even exciting or interesting enough that they're they're worth talking about, to be quite honest. <laughs> um, but here we go, the ultimate segue from the pain of cult music to the weirdness of pain. Katrina, I think I did one. I did one well. Craig's going to be proud of me. You wrote a great article about some weird stuff to do with pain. And pain does seem to act kind of strangely at times. Yeah, I was, I was looking at um, uh, some research that was published a few weeks ago about the link between chronic stress and chronic pain. And I just got sucked down this rabbit hole looking at all this stuff around pain and how blimmin' weird it is and... So it came to this realisation that there is such fertile ground there for anyone trying to sell something to people as a cure. I can see why people may be having treatments and they're not working, giving them the results they expect. Some of it's just counterintuitive what happens. And I think when you've got that stuff going on, people will try and sell you things and that, that's what's happening. So this particular study found that um, chronic stress and chronic pain have got overlapping neural circuits in the brain involved in regulation of them. And this is all happening in an area of the brain called the ventromedial prefrontal cortex. bit complicated, but it's not the top of your head uh, where you think of the thinking part. It's a bit lower down, kind of more behind your eyes where you get your headaches. And this is the part of the brain that is associated with addiction. It's the part of the brain that gets really badly damaged by things like cocaine. And if you are doing sort of exposure therapy to um, kick a automated response to something, say you're scared of snakes or bunny rabbits or something, this is the area of the brain that's active in extinguishing those fears. Um, so there's a whole lot going on there in terms of sensitization of the brain. And this seems to be connected. So when that part of the brain doesn't work, then you start to have problems, according to this research, in the self-regulation of pain but you also stress as well and what they found is if you've got chronic stress then it might sensitize people so that they feel more pain so it's using the same circuits and so even though pain and stress are two different things the stress mm -hmm. can make someone respond with a pain response um, or respond more to pain that they're experiencing 
And now the kicker is that most often if someone is in severe pain, they're given opioid painkillers, you know, things like tramadol or that kind of stuff. That has the same effect. It stops the self-regulation of pain because you aren't doing any adaptive coping because it's all being done for you. You're not being exposed to that. And <laughs> and so the sensation of pain can get worse if you are on opioids as well. So it has the same effect essentially as wow. stress. Okay, so so an opioid might give you a temporary relief, but in the long term for people that have chronic pain, it could well just be making it worse. It means that you're feeling more pain, as you say, you're being sensitized, that you are more sensitive to pain, which means you're going to feel the pain worse at the times that you haven't taken the painkillers. That's right. It's sort of a feed forward cycle. So it gets worse and worse. And there are some things that happen with other painkillers. I've, I've experienced um, that with ibuprofen or something. I can't take that now because my whole body will ache. Had too much of that. So, um, so there are, there are definitely weird things that can happen there. So that is sort of pointing more towards, you know, if there are other alternatives to treat the pain, such as cognitive behavioral therapy, which is, it's not a physical treatment at all. It's just how you think about the pain and accepting that pain. Then those are things that should be considered. Probably quite a hard pill to swallow for someone who's experiencing pain and have got quite bad. But and anything that can reduce stress could help reduce the um, experience of pain in people. So that's that's what that bit of research was about and and that sort of led me into all these other things so so when you get a vaccination or a blood test do you look at the needle does it hurt more if you do or you don't which is the old debate and my theory was look at the needle okay which is dead wrong and apparently it's better not to look at it um, it really will hurt less if you don't look at the needle so I took my two girls in for their meningococcal vaccines and because um, my three-year-old knew it was coming and understood this she very loudly announced in her best stage voice all on the way there and as soon as she could see the um, medical centre all along the car park in the waiting centre that she does not want her vaccination <laughs> she didn't need it <laughs> And she was screaming and in tears. My five-year-old was oblivious to the whole thing, was stuck on her iPhone, and she was fine. But we had to give her an olipop and a star sticker for her to get over the trauma of the um, vaccination. So needles really do hurt less if you don't look, and there's research oh. to prove it. But also there's some weird things that happen sometimes that if you don't know there's something serious wrong with you or you aren't paying much attention – you might not notice it. So, so, for example, you burn yourself on the pan and the stove and you get a little burn on your finger and it keeps you awake all night or you've got a itchy bite that's driving you up the wall. And these are really tiny, tiny injuries. But there was a guy called Arthur Lampert who managed in a car accident to get a 1963 Thunderburn turn signal embedded in his arm for 51 years and he didn't notice it until it started to corrode and cause some swelling. Now, the turn signal on a 1963 Thunderbird 
is a foot-long metal rod sticking out of the steering wheel, and this guy had it. Now, look, I understand he was in a car accident, there may have been some other things going on, but at some point, when you think there's like an extra bone in my arm, or, you know, just, the, mm-hmm. it might have hurt a little bit. So, yeah, so strange things can happen. The other weird thing is if you magnify a limb, so if you've got a sore arm, and you get a magnifying glass and point it at the sore arm, research shows that the pain and the swelling will get worse. Now, if you minify it, which is a real word, um, so you're the opposite of a magnifying glass, you're making your arm look smaller, then the pain gets smaller. Now, nobody's actually worked out how to practically apply this, because obviously you need magnifying glasses stuck all over you and need to be looking at those every time you look at your limbs but it does show that there is a bit of a link between what we're thinking and what we expect and um, what we're seeing and the sensation of pain this is kind of related to the placebo effect so if you have an expectation that something will relieve pain then it will to some degree Um, But also if you have the expectation of pain, so you see something that you think is blood and is your own blood, you will quite often experience pain even though you haven't been hurt. So there was a famous experiment where people had, I think they might have anaesthetized people's hands or something, and then they had these rubber hands that they were looking through in a box so it looked like they were your hands and stuck them with pins, and people could feel the pain from the pins and these rubber hands that weren't their own. So there's sort of a conditioned response to stimuli, like like brushing, you can't stop it, the sensation of pain. And generally pain does a really good job of protecting you. If you get uh, hurt, um, you'll be sensitive for a while. Um, So if you cut yourself or hurt yourself, you won't want to put your... Um, sore finger or anything in harm's way for a while and that's a way of protecting the body but it is possible that that sensitization can get stuck that way and it can get worse so sometimes someone might be experiencing chronic pain and there was an initial injury and it could be an insect bite or a cart or something but that's been long forgotten and they're still experiencing the pain from the sensitization that's occurred there and so we've essentially got what can appear to be completely psychological pain but it's not it's a real physiological thing and it's something you you can't stop you can only manage it so that sort of rejects a few things in my brain in terms of where people are experiencing some of these chronic pain disorders where they've got these amorphous labels you know we really need to listen to people when they say this, is some of this is really real stuff. And until those sorts of pain are taken seriously, we won't be able to come up with a medical solution. They're just going to be sold lots of woo to fix the pain. And there's always a peddler of woo there to sell you something where where medical science ends and, and doctors can't do anything. There's always a shyster there to sell you some variation of snake oil. That's right. And if you could have a horrible experience with a medical professional that you feel like they're brushing you off, but you know you can feel pain, and, but then you get a sympathetic response from someone else who's trying to 
value something or believes in something that doesn't have a scientific basis, I guess people might gravitate more towards the support that they can get through that than the lack of support that they're getting. So I guess it's just, if we could understand pain better and get some science, you know, more science there, then we're less likely to have people running off to um, those sorts of sources for that. I guess what I'm saying is it's probably never all in someone's head. Mm -hmm. It's very seldom that um, pain is just there for no reason. So the link between the physiological factors, um, physical causes could degrade completely and disappear over time. So that, that cut that you've got, the toe that you broke, the insect bite or whatever has caused it, will be long gone, but it's possible someone can still experience pain. And if they have been taking opioid painkillers, then it's possible that that could be causing some issues as well. So actually magnifying the experience of pain. I guess some of the names that are given to some of these conditions are where they don't have a specific physical cause of things like fibromyalgia, irritable bowel, Um, and something called complex regional pain syndrome. And basically, the sensitization just makes things hurt more than they should, Um, but it's real. And um, so there's some sort of thoughts that even being unhealthy could cause pain. So poor health and fitness could put enough stress on the body so that you just generally feel like crap. Um, all the time and have experienced some pain but pain is very real and as we can see it's very weird um, <laughs> that doesn't mm. necessarily track with what's wrong with you but in most cases the body does a pretty good job of saying hey something's not right here but it can end up in a situation where you basically conditioned to have a pain response to something so, okay, well, fascinating here that sometimes the the ways that we try and help people with pain actually might just be making it worse. Yeah, mm. and I guess the concern there is, well, if we are helping people with painkillers that are making their pain worse and setting up the spiral and not necessarily helping them with the stress aspects, then that's the medical for profession that's doing that. That's the science that's doing that. And, you know, some of these other things that rely on the placebo effect may be having some sort of positive effect for people, whereas this other stuff isn't. So you can end up in a situation where people are driven away from the science and towards the woo. Which is never a good thing. So much woo. Okay, so I I think we're going to try and keep this to maybe an hour or a little bit more this episode, which means I am not going to talk about the fact that I got kicked out of my cult recently. I think you need to talk about getting kicked yeah, out of your cult. You can't you can't just leave people hanging on. Oh, no, I'm not going to talk about I, kicked out of my cult. No, you need to tell people why. No, <laughs> no, to, I'm absolutely going to gonna leave it. I'm going to leave it until two weeks time. I, I'm going to write about it in a couple of weeks uh, or a week and a half or so. And 
Tim, who is a Wellington Skeptics in the Pub member, seems to be doing an investigation at the moment into how the Eastern Lightning Church spread within China, given that they're an illegal church. How did they manage to become so prolific? So I'm I'm looking forward to reading that. And given that he's been learning Mandarin for years, it seems like he's been able to get hold of some sources that would make no sense to me, but he's been able to find some interesting details. So I am going to leave this for two weeks, I'm afraid. I'm sorry, guys, that this is a cliffhanger, but I got kicked out of Eastern Lightning, and you're not going to find out for another couple of weeks why I was kicked out of Eastern Lightning. But honestly, it was a it was a fun event, um, and I, I have the text of some of the chats we had that I will be sharing with everybody, and we will we will talk further about it in a couple of weeks little bit sad but mostly kind of relieved maybe that it's over Mm. yeah what are you doing with your free time now that you don't (laughs) have to be uh, brother mark anymore i'm trying to join the freemasons but so far they've been really awful they've been (laughs) just so so slow they may have actually done their research yeah uh yeah maybe that maybe that's why they're not responding to me because they actually bothered to look me up but we'll see maybe we could ask james if he wants to be a freemason he could pull off. He could pull it off. He could play the part. He looks the part slightly. He could. So he needs to join, and then he needs to send me an invite or whatever they do. Shake my hand in a certain way or something. I don't know. Show his nipple. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what the secret symbols are. It might be showing a nipple. <laughs> it's, I'll find it's out a when part I join. Of the swearing and ceremony. I think you have to show. Um, part of your chest to prove you're not a woman and um, part of your leg to prove that you're fit and able and oh there's a few things oh my god but but there is but there's like there are women's branches and i think co-ed branches of uh the masons depending on where you are in the world right okay yeah so yes so sorry for the cliffhanger sorry not sorry for the cliffhanger but If you want to hear in the meantime, presumably I would be happy to tell you if you came along to Skeptics in the Pub this Friday. Bronwyn, do we, we, I guess we have a Skeptics in the Pub this Friday. It's Matariki, right? Yep, yep. We do still have Skeptics in the Pub on Friday, and then we'll have Skeptics in Cyberspace the following Friday. Awesome. So you can probably, if you want a sneak preview, I'm sure we'll talk about it at one or both of those. And we also have Skeptical Activism next week on Thursday. Um, if you want to look up uh, any of these events, know what's going on, just go to meetup.com, yeah. look for Wellington Skeptics in the Pub, and it'll all be there. There's also Dunedin Skeptics in the Pub and Auckland Skeptics in the Pub who have their own meetup pages, so follow them, figure out what's going on in those regions. But they're not as good as Wellington. You're probably better off driving to Wellington and joining us, to be <laughs> quite honest. Yes, we are so entertaining. Awesome. All right. Well, I think that's it. Uh, we will be back to normal with Craig, whatever normal is, in a couple of weeks. So I guess for now, I, I'd like to thank you, Katrina, for filling in. And I'd like to thank you, Brad, for coming on board and for writing an article. I, we've been trying to get every committee member to write an article. We figure it's the least they, uh, they owe us. Uh, given that they volunteered to help out the skeptics, that we need one article from every committee member. So thank you for writing the article, Brad, and thank you for joining us. And now that we've got the floodgates open, I I really seriously am looking for more articles from you. There's no escaping me now. No problem. We'll we'll get that done. Hey, hey, look at that. That's a positive response. I love it. Mm -hmm. Just um, you remind me of what that one you want 
I will do. I I will spam you with the Schumann resonance and solfeggio frequencies. There's going to be no end of topics from me now. Mm. I've heard of those. Yeah. (laughs) Sounds good. And please also tell us if playing uh, Mozart or Beethoven will make your baby smarter. Oh, yeah. That's another one. It's called the Mozart effect. Yeah. Yeah. That's another one. Yes. Yes. That that would be great to know because I have a sneaking suspicion that it doesn't work. (laughs) awesome well thank you guys for joining us thank you everybody for listening uh we will be back in two weeks but for now it's time for us to say goodbye after i've told you that you can give us feedback by emailing us at podcast at skeptics.nz we'd love to hear from any and all of you except for craig we're not interested in what craig has to think about the podcast he's just jealous because he hasn't been on it that's why he's been a little bit whingy but everybody else if you've got any ideas for articles we should write topics we should talk about on the podcast or if you've got something interesting you'd love to come and talk to us about let us know um we're always keen to have new people on and and have a chat with people absolutely so from all of us it is goodbye you guys need to say goodbye Takite. Hey, bye and it's goodbye from me see ya <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>